You're listening to MHD Off The Record. On this episode, we speak with former mayor of Stockton, Michael Tubbs. Michael Tubbs is the founder of the nonprofit organization End Poverty in California, the founder of Mayors for a Guaranteed Income, and the special advisor to California Governor Gavin Newsom for economic mobility and opportunity. In 2016, he was elected mayor of Stockton at 26 years old. He was the city's first African-American mayor and the youngest mayor of any major city in American history. He piloted the first mayor-led guaranteed income program in the country. His book, The Deeper the Roots, a memoir of hope and home, where he details his experiences of his life, is available now wherever books are sold. Enjoy the show. Uh, Siobhan, I'm happy to be here with you and our special guest today, Michael Tubbs, a son of Stockton and Central California and uh, a real champion of poor people. A real champion of the common sense idea is that the best way to deal with poverty is to make sure people have money. <laughs> like, it's amazing. I think uh, he went to Stanford. Like, it's a fancy degree to figure this out. <laughs> but... Um, uh, he was the youngest person to be a, may, uh, a mayor of a big city uh, in the United States at the age of uh, 26 year old, years old. Like I said, he uh, graduated Stanford University, raised about $20 million to make sure they had a program called Stockton Scholars, uh, which meant that there was a universal scholarship. Again, basic idea. If you let kids know at the end of high school and college, there's something like you had, Siobhan, exactly. at the USC program, the family of five. Siobhan went to Manual Arts, USC, oh, yeah, yeah. five. So if you finished your school with certain grades, you got to go to USC. Neighborhood Academic Initiative. There you go. There you go. I remember it well That's because crazy. we always, at Community Coalition, we work with kids to get them into college. And we always knew that the people who went to Fauché or Manual Arts were fine. They just had to make their grades and USC would take them through. And every person that went through that in Community Coalition is a college graduate now. Like, it's amazing. And you know, you just take the school down the street that doesn't have that program. It's, you know, it's a radically different outcome. Yeah, radically different outcome. Same kids, same kids, same situation. Uh, so he did that uh, and got, you know, a whole bunch of uh, awards, but welcome to MHD Off The Record. Uh, it's good to have you here. Let's start by just hearing your story. I've read your book. You kind of talk about your upbringing some and and uh, take us to the point, you know, how you grew up in Stockton to the point that you decide that you're, you're interested in politics. Yeah, well, first, um, thanks for having me. I would say as a new Angelino, I've been blessed in having sort of the councilman be my unofficial Sherpa. I'm talking L.A. and South L.A. And L.A. politics has been a cheat code. I feel like I'm really plugged in already. <laughs> um, so I want to thank you for your hospitality. And um, yeah, born and raised in Stockton, um, South Stockton to be exact. My mom, aunt and grandmother, it's so funny because they're not like super involved political people. So the mm -hmm. fact that so much of our lives now <laughs> revolve around politics and particularly for the last decade, Stockton politics is still hilarious. They were they voted for sure, but they weren't at. Mm -hmm. City council meeting, they weren't debating. Like, it, 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 like local government had no real place in terms of the conversations sure. we would have growing up. My mom was extremely young when she had me. She was in high school. She was a high schooler. And my father, when I was born, was in the juvenile detention facility. And he's still incarcerated. And I say that because I think sort of so much of my worldview, my political view, comes from again not even though I was very blessed to go to school like Stanford, but most of the stuff I do actually like just learn like, yeah, right. like growing, yes. like yeah. growing up um, that now I actually remember hearing some of my classmates some of the magnet programs I was in in high school talk about people who had no money and it was just foreign to me I was like who are they talking I didn't know like I didn't know that's like, I didn't know that's the, the um, thoughts people had about poor people when they yeah. said they're lazy or they're dumb and I'm like you can't be talking about my mom who works 12 hour days right. or my aunt. And then we still wake up on Saturday and go to the convalescent hospital and volunteer. Like I, It was yeah. just yeah. so wild to me that, wow, in terms of my lived experience and what people think, they're just mm -hmm. radically different. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And also, mention the programs you were in. I was a beneficiary from groups like Community Coalition in mm -hmm. Stockton and being just trained and nurtured and mentored by organizers. In fact, I spent every summer in high school going to the California Youth Think Tank. I'm started by William Allen Young and Helen Young. Yeah. Um, that's where I met Frederica McGee, who is now oh, okay. um, cheap. I didn't know, she was just Mr. Young's sister-in-law. So I just huh. see, would see her every summer. She always huh. had like little political <laughs> advice, but yeah. I had no idea how plugged in she was. But so yeah. many of those programs and so many of those um, 
opportunities were very pivotal. Mm-hmm. Um, in high school, they had a lot of like community organizing around the teen center. Yeah. Um, and how there was nothing. It's funny because when I was mayor, I would try not to get annoyed because they were saying the same stuff I was saying when I was in high school. Like, <laughs> there's nothing to do for youth in Stockton, but really spending time <laughs> thinking about fat and engagement. Yeah. And that's why I met local government. And uh-huh. the biggest shocker for me, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well, council member, was that. I remember being 16 and having a meeting with like the mayor and the council member and me walking away saying, wow, these people ain't smarter, that much smarter than me. <laughs> or like, that's right. Wow. That's right. Like, that's right. Because you think particularly when you have some level of marginalization, you think those who make decisions make decisions because maybe they are smarter or maybe they had there's something. And when I realized they weren't, I was like, oh, I could do this. Like, like, I, like if they can do it, I can do it. And, um, yeah, so went to college with no actually thought that I would be back in Stockton. I actually went yeah. to go to the East Coast for school, and I thought I would come back to Stockton for like vacations and stuff. Um, but then while in college, interned in the White House, and my job was to work with mayors and councils. And this was 2010. Mm-hmm. So like the Tea Party was like the worst thing in politics back then. Missed those days. Like the Tea Party, they were like the worst people ever. We're like, how did we get here? And then there was so much that the President Obama wanted to do that I couldn't get done. But I would see these mayors and council members just do things at a local level. And I was like, yeah. oh my gosh, maybe local government's like the union of change. And then around the same time, my cousin was a victim of a homicide in Stockton. And mm-hmm. it was really that juxtaposition between sort of being told you're quote unquote successful, you're so special, you're at Stanford, you're at the White House, but feeling very powerless and thinking like, what's actually better? Because I'm good with my own family mm-hmm. is still mm-hmm. suffering. Survivor's I felt, yeah, yeah, very, yeah, yeah, strong survivor's guilt and yeah. just felt um, very powerless that I had mm-hmm. to do something. So that's when I decided I would run for city council. Um, so you run for council. Uh, and what kind of system do they have there? Is it at large? Is it districts? Like, what's so the story? In 2012, Stockton was still an at large <laughs> city council vote. So you had to run in your district in the primary. And then run citywide in the general. It was like some Jim Crow. Rel- like yeah, it was like the most racist. <laughs> the well, describe what at large means. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so there's a system where in some cities, we had this in a lot of cities in Orange County, everybody has to run in the whole city. So what happens is because the turnout is lower among minority groups, their candidates never win. Whereas if you have a district system, no matter how low the turnout is, somebody from that district's going to be on the council. You know, even if if only five people show up in, you know, the Republican district in L.A., they're going to have a council member, even though I might have 100,000 show up, you know, here in my South L.A. district and our votes equal the same. So when you have an art large system, what it says is the person who finished first, second, third, fourth, they get the seats. Oh, wow. Those, okay. So that's the difference. So a lot of times that scheme is done in a way to keep people of color and low-income communities out of the government. And particularly in Stockton, where there's no campaign contribution limits to, to run oh city gosh. to run citywide, it's expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't have family and friends who could give money, you have to go to the same five developers and the same sort of on public sector. You, it's, it's, it's by design to produce a particular outcome in terms of elected candidates. So I was not supposed to be um, a beneficiary of said system, but because I had been at Stanford, I had access to capital outside of Stockton, which made it possible. And you were Stanford during the Silicon yeah. blow up. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then my senior year when I ran for city council, before I knew I was going to run for city council, I was the student rep on the development committee for the um, board of trustees. And I did that because when my mentor said, that's where the money is. And if you don't care nothing about it, you probably just want to be in a room with these people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they get to mm-hmm. know you. So mm-hmm. I applied mm-hmm. um, and did it. And five of my top 10 donors came from that committee <laughs> and, and followed me um, through my political career. So, yes, yeah, so I ran my senior year in college. Um, had never run a campaign before. Wow. Um, had you been involved in any campaigns? No. Wow. So I just impressive. was reading, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. how do you win? Are you going to raise the most money, knock mm-hmm. on, the, on the right doors? And luckily found some folks who are more part of the quote-unquote establishment who added some structure mm-hmm. and some actual know-how <laughs> to yeah. the campaign. So yeah. my campaign manager um, was chair of the local party, had started the pr- first Pride Center in the county, had worked on several congressional campaigns. So he brought Got it. an understanding of how to do this thing. And then and we turned out just a bunch of volunteers from young people I had mentored and people from my church 
um, and, and, and raised money. And it's funny because when we talk about the, the, the at-large thing, it was a horrible system. But because of that, I was able to run for mayor relatively easy. Because people already knew you. Because I had spent yeah. time building citywide relationships. Yeah. So the pivot to run for mayor wasn't as huge of a jump because it was, oh, no, I've ran a, I've talked to these voters before. I ran a, like it, it forced me to build those relationships, although that system, we changed it in 2016. Um, so that was just a district system. For me personally, it actually helped accelerate right. becoming mayor. Right. Um, there, there were a lot of, we just had a mayor's race here in Los Angeles, and they were members of the city council who ran for mayor. And when they came to my district, people were like, who is this? Yeah. Because they never had any reason <laughs> to be in this part of the city. Yeah, so that, um, so really, really interesting how, that, how they ended up working out for me. Take us to Stockton, um, just politically, like what's the makeup, yeah. you know, what are the sections, what's the terrain like, you know, where do the black, what's the story of the black folks yeah. there, what's the story of the Latino community, how is the town set up, that kind of thing. Yeah, Stockton is a really interesting place. So it's a city of about 330,000 people now, right in the Central Valley. But it's not, like people think of agriculture, because yeah. so many of yeah. the folks who came there, particularly the... Um, Black folks originally and, and, and the Latino folks and Southeast Asian folks came to work in the fields. Mm -hmm. But the fields are adjacent or or to the to the suburbs of Stockton. But Stockton's like a city. Now, okay. I think a lot of people are like, you're from the farm. I'm like, no, yeah. I, never, I never saw a farm. Oh, wow. but, but we're so close in proximity to all that agriculture. It is um, the most diverse city per capita in the country. Um, it has sort of so many like refugees populations. So Interesting. Folk, like, I remember growing up in my neighborhood, we had Sikh neighbors, we had Latino neighbors, we had Hmong neighbors, we like, like so like folks fleeing the Khmer Rouge genocide camp. But like we had, like it was like the UN, like everyone wow. fleeing some degree of, of of oppression or looking for economic opportunity and 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 and, and finding um, some, a semblance of that in in Stockton. It's um, it's a family city, right? So it's it's you. Everyone knows everyone. In many ways, it's just a bunch of families who have been there of different races for the past hundred years who had a bunch of kids. It's, it's like oh, wow. you have like some black families that have been there since early 1900s. Um, you have Latino families. You have, um, I remember when I was, my first meeting with the head of the Chamber of Commerce, we went to the Stockton Golf and Country Club when I was on city council. He was, before that, he was like a sheriff and he was on um, board of supervisors. His grandfather was on the board of supervisors and the land we sat on was his family land they just gave in the 1800s wow. to start the country. Like, 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 so it's like the history is very real yeah. and, and, and very deep and, and, and deeply rooted. And because of like real estate and housing prices, you have a lot of folk, again, economic refugees fleeing the Bay Area. And coming to Stockton I and see, sort of I see. raising property values and beginning to drive people out. So we're starting. We were starting to have a conversation when I was still in the office there around how do we grow without displacing and what are the safeguards we put in place. And that's why I was so interested in Destination Crenshaw stuff yeah. when I got here, just to learn like how are other folks thinking about the the need to make sure that prosperity is broadly shared and that you can improve a neighborhood without kicking all the people out. Right. And, right. And starting over. Um, and what what are the economic drivers? Like, what do people? What kind of jobs do people do? What's the yeah? So in Stockton, and that's one of that gets to our historic issues, historical issues with poverty and violence, is that the main employers are all government. Oh, interesting. So the school district, mm -hmm. um, the Kaiser, like hospitals, the city and county government. Sounds like LA. Or, or the big drivers. <laughs> you and throw I, in USC and you have our top five <laughs> yeah. people here. So at first I thought that meant we just had a lot of teachers. Yeah, right. <laughs> but right, then right, right, when right. I did the research, it's like yeah. we have teachers, but a lot of the um, janitors and bus orderlies drivers. and bus drivers yeah. and stuff, like just yeah. real salt of the earth sort of people. Um, and because of that, there's not a lot of private sector employment, which makes the stakes of sort of local government and in, in the politics a little bit more contentious yeah. than I think people would suggest, but it's literally because that's the economy. Mm -hmm. So whoever controls mm -hmm. those contracts controls what wealth or economic opportunity looks like for folks over the next coming years. So I didn't appreciate that until I was in it. I see. I was like, why is everyone so invested? It's like, this is where, this is this is the commerce of, of the city, so it makes the stakes that much higher. Wow. 
Um, so you so you get into council, you parlay that into a run for mayor, uh, become dynamic. I remember going to see you speak when you became like weeks after you became mayor at some, I don't know, foundation, big meeting or whatever. And I just remember being really scared for you. Because <laughs> I was like, this is going to be a situation. Uh, but big accomplishments as mayor. Uh, and I will start with the one that gets less attention. But I think, you know, frankly, for me, this is the one that speaks the loudest to me. Uh, that is the 40% drop in homicides, uh, you know, which in every city, and I, I've never even seen the data from Stockton, but I know anywhere you go, homicides affect our people more than anybody oh, else. Oh, yeah. And the 80% uh, drop in police shootings uh, during the time you were mayor. Talk to us uh, first about uh, the homicide and sort of the community and street violence um, and, and what strategies you felt were most effective helping achieve that. You know, first, I appreciate that because that... <laughs> took the most work. Yeah. But it's also why I ran for office. Like, mm -hmm. I didn't run for office to do basic income. I ran for yeah. office because my cousin was murdered. So yeah. every time there was a shooting or a homicide and we get the text message yep. and email, it was personal to me. So I was yes. like, right, we, we have to fix this or all this wasn't worth it. And part of it was I was very lucky to have a really good police chief um, at the time who sort of came up through the ranks, but somehow had been exposed to other ways of thinking mm -hmm. and knew how to play like the internal politics game, but also had a very similar vision for public safety in many respects, which I was shocked by. I did not expect that. And just spent three years while I was on city council, like doing the deep work of learning. Um, our data systems, learning sort of our current or at the time, the current violence reduction strategy, um, building trust and rapport with like the homicide detectives and the like, the folks who are part of the institution, just so I can understand like what's working and what's not. And what that level of analysis taught me was that part of the issues that Stockton is 300,000 people, less than one percent drive 80 percent of, of the of the shootings. So it's like sure. 150 yeah. people. And yeah. the wild thing, council member, this is what made me like obsessive about it, is that we knew who they were. Like anytime there's a shooting, both the shooter and the suspect, they weren't foreign to us. They had right, been arrested right, on average right, eight times. Right. Half of them were still on probation and parole. Every neighborhood still knows had... who the shooters are. So, so I was yeah. like, we, I was like, this is criminal, y'all. We know like the fact that none of these people were shocked. Like we have it. We not just intel. We've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on them. We are in conversations with them all the time. They're mm -hmm. between us and the county, where where they're not people who are hidden from us, and yet. Right. We, and then to your point, and you raising your question, Stockton's only 10% African-American, so probably like 4 to 5% black male, but black males made up 45% of all, all killings. Yeah. And Hispanic communities, like 40%, Hispanic 45% of all killings. So just huge disproportionality. So anyway, when I became mayor, I recognized that our strategy in terms of identifying and using data to tell us who were the guys who were actively shooting was a good one, but the issue was that we hadn't yet invested in the resources for them. So it's one thing to know that someone's going to shoot, it's, but you can't arrest them without a case. You can't arrest them. You need to have a case. You need to have evidence. It takes time to build that up. And a lot of that requires a trusted community who, if your clearance rate, which is if someone shot, the likelihood that they're arrested yep. is low, it was going to trust that you can protect. Anyway, but there was no opportunities we were giving them. So we'd have these uh, since 2013, once a quarter, me, even as a councilman, the police chief would sit down and have these call-ins. It would tell these young men, hey, violence is top priority. We need you to change. And when the police chief would speak, he could speak with fidelity because the U.S. attorney's office was there. Oh, Probation wow. was there. Like, everyone was there. So when he said, you are on our radar, if you keep shooting, there will be severe consequences, mm -hmm. there was truth to that. Right. But on our side, when we talk about opportunities and we talk about, like, hey, if you make the hard choice to change because it's not easy, then we have this, this, and this for you. That message didn't have the same level of fidelity. Huh. So when I became mayor, I was like, and it didn't have the same. Let me just stop you. You're saying it didn't have the level of fidelity because we couldn't deliver. Yeah, on we, we we couldn't deliver. We couldn't like, if yeah. they called tomorrow and said I need a yeah. tattoo removal, there was no yeah. one to take them. Yeah. So, like we yeah. we what? Or I want our, a job. Our yeah. intentions were good. <laughs> right, 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 right. But right, but right. we didn't have it, so we created this office. The police chief and I, when I was on council, created this office of violence prevention, and with the ten sort of city employees who are peacekeepers. They have caseloads of six to eight men each. So like, that's 80 people, but we know there's 150 people. <laughs> that we, like that's not mm -hmm. good enough. So long answer. So then I brought in um, a program called Advanced Peace, which was a similar model, a little more controversial because A, the violence interrupters weren't going to be city employees. 
which gives them the freedom and flexibility to maybe sure. do things differently. Exactly. Do things I may not want to hear about mm-hmm. in terms of... Uh, of, of to have the real conversations. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, mean, I, mean, I don't need to know. You're a nonprofit. I support. And But they also were able to give some of the young men stipends because we also found that the folks that were driving shootings, 75% of them were housing insecure. They were couch surfing. Mm-hmm. 80% of their families were food insecure. So they would like deliver food to the, like we just, it was all this data around that, A, the victims and perpetrators are one in the same. So the yeah. same person who's a perpetrator yep. today is a victim tomorrow. So let's yeah. treat these men with a, with a complete understanding of their hu- humanity and that they're not just shooters and violent, but they also are actually responding to being shot or losing someone close to them. And they were all like, none of them have money. <laughs> None of them had jobs. They were all hungry and angry and sleeping on the couch and had young children to take care of, et cetera. So to answer your question, I know it took a long way to get there. We um, brought in a, another strategy to to really, again, and I, when I introduced to the council, I, I told my colleagues, I said, listen, y'all, this is just about when me and the police chief meet with these guys, I want to be as credible as he is. <laughs> because uh, when see. he speaks, yeah. he ain't lying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that U.S. attorney is right here saying, you come in here, we're doing gang enhancements all day. Do not, you do not want to sit for them in my courtroom. I said, that's agree. I disagree with the message. That's the message that has some fidelity. But when I talk about like jobs and tattoo removals and we'll hold your hand and we'll help you navigate and we know it'll be two steps forward and one step back. It's not going to be a linear path. 50% of the time that might be accurate. That's right, we're not going right, to right. reduce our numbers because like the cops in jail thing isn't new. <laughs> so... Right, and and you have to raise your hand and say, "Hey, I want you know, I want the job working on sidewalks." And then we say, "We'll get back to you," and we may or may not get back to you. When dude says you're going to jail, the the prisons you can see it, (laughs) like it's there, and that's the message they've gotten. And you don't have to ask. So, (laughs) so part of it was also us understanding that, in terms of a strategy, the stick wasn't what was drive that was going to drive behavior change. It was a carrot. We always had sticks. So it's right. like, no, but the stick is actually more effective when there's a real carrot. <laughs> when it's like, no, there's actually a choice I can make. Here. And you relate them together. Yeah. So so that's that, that's what we did. And we, um, but it also the hardest thing about this work, it also takes the right people to do it, right? Like you could have the best strategy, but sort of what we've seen in the last couple of years that I've been mayor is that the folks who are like running that office, the director and the consultants we had were like really top of class. They have been let go or their contracts weren't renewed. Um, So now we see the city going back in some ways to where we were pre-2012 because we have some semblance of the strategy, but it's also the execution part. Sure, it's sort of sure, sure. Having the credibility. And it's not the kind of thing you can fake. Oh, you can't yeah, fake it. Or mail it in, yeah. And it's it's like a very unique skill set to mm-hmm. be able to work with the police chief. Yeah. And the active shooters, and the funders, and the city man. Like, like, yeah, like, no, like it's special, yeah, yeah. special people. And, so and I don't want to yeah. gloss over the fact that you're also addressing basic human needs. Oh. Like, that's the key thing here. The, the thing that reduced the violence is addressing their basic human needs. And I think that, and I appreciate you saying that so succinctly, because I think from everything I did while in office, it was all driven by how do we end structural violence? How do we end this avoidable impairment of basic human needs? Like, what does government look like when folks' basics are met? And let's try that. Like, give students a basic path where it's like, I used to teach, and I would notice my students, they responded differently to things that were guaranteed. Like if I told them theoretically, if you do this, this may happen for you. Different level of motivation. And I say, if you get a 2.0 GPA, I guarantee you I have $4,000 for you to go to college. That just cha- changed how much they yeah. work. Like, because it was like, no, it's not. Because I, I think part of it is so much of our folks grow up and see the only guarantee is hard work and more work. But like they've seen like bad things happen. They've seen tragedies happen. They see people do everything right and still not make it. So... I think to the point of the program you went through and the work we did in Stockton, part of it was matching again, like with the gun violence work, expectation with resources and expectation with opportunity. Like, yes, I expect you to work hard. I expect you to do your homework. I expect you to pass your classes. And when you do that, you can expect from me the opportunity to go to the next step. And you won't have to be like your aunt who did all those things, but couldn't go to college because she couldn't afford it. Or and, and that was a story we kept hearing, particularly from our Latina students around sort of where we asked the behaviors around the college and beliefs. Part of it was like, no, I've seen people do all the right things, but then they can't pay at the end and they're just 
stuck here or they're taking care of siblings or they're not right, able to have do the same yeah. job the person who dropped out <laughs> yeah, so it's like, working hard just right. to work hard is right. like, we're about so yeah sorry. right so you touched on something and this is a little bit of the left uh so just warning you you talked about when you were telling the story about homicides when you're talking about your students up until the very end but particularly when you're talking about violence you kept saying men um you know we've had 600 some mass shootings in the country this year not one of them hmm. Not one of them in the entire United States was done by someone who was not a man, or who was not a cisgender man. Can you talk about, you know, gender and and the role you think it plays and and specific strategies to help us confront the near monopoly men have on on violence? Um, So I mentioned every quarter the police chief and I would have these call-ins. There'd be like a minister there. It was interesting because all of the, yeah, I think all of the government players were men. Mm -hmm. The mayor, the police chief. U.S. Attorney's Office, probation, district attorney, all men. All the men, all the people we're talking to were men, but the folks who brought the men were all women. Mm. It was always a mom or a girlfriend. Mm. I never saw a friend bring a friend. I never seen a father in in eight years. I never saw a father bring their son. It was always someone's mama or someone's baby's mother who was there. And what we recognized and what we were trying... We're trying to do a better job of is sort of how do we build relationship with the women in these men's lives? Because they seem to be the ones that were helping to drive the pro-social change and sort of some of the few people, if not all the time, sometimes they would listen to. So actually, one of the speakers we would always have would be a mother who lost somebody to gun violence. And uh, we would always okay, see okay. a reaction yeah, when a mom is speaking yeah. about like how, what it feels like. And the mom would always... And sadly, because of the issue of violence, there were so many moms we could choose from. And the moms would always say something that stuck with me. They would always say, um, after my son was murdered, friends didn't call me back. And the police were trying to figure out what happened. The friends would never call. A year, two years, three years, I never checked on the kids. She said, like, all this thing he was so in, and they always say there was, this was their whole life. Their homies, their yeah, homies. Yeah. And I'm telling, and she, and they would always say, I'm telling you, when you die, your homies will not be there to be your mom and your yeah. girlfriend and these kids picking up picking up the pieces. Um, and but to, to, to the, which is not what the point of your question. But in, in terms of your question, I, I think that yeah, it's a crisis and just toxic masculinity. This, yeah. this idea of, of, of violence and aggression and anger. And I've just been reading Bell Hooks recently, and she talks about this idea of patriarchy being very complicated for black and latino men in a racist society because the ideal of patriarchy is to be a white male and to be a provider and to be a protector but you will never be that right (laughs) right and and that causes anger and angst because you're told that you're supposed to do this but there's structural barriers to your ability to provide to protect etc and that some of that leads to sort of the crazy rates of domestic abuse we have between black spouses and, and black black men and black women, for example, yeah. or just the, the intimate partner violence or the violence we see everywhere. Um, so one of the strategies we did when the men were part of the either the peacekeeper program or the community program was really like cognitive behavior therapy, like really trauma informed and, and changing sort of are trying to change. Um, how decisions were made and sort of impulse control and teaching folks about cortisol levels and how you turn up because your brain has been, sh- yeah, <laughs> it's been yeah, yeah. Trigger, to be trigger, like, I got trigger. And, and other ways to handle that. And it's funny, you see these hardened dudes talk about how mindfulness has been helpful for them, <laughs> how sort of breathing and, and but it's, 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 it is fascinating though, how because of, patriarchy, sexism, etc. You can have a boy and a girl grow up in the same community, experience the same traumas. Both lose people they love, mm-hmm. and yet the young man's more likely to pick up the gun and, and, and cause more harm. And I also don't want to lose sight, and you can probably speak to this having had students, we also criminalize black boys and Latino boys at a very early age, yeah. literally starting in preschool. Yeah. So their behaviors are also criminalized very early. Yeah. Um, and it also, in many of the studies you find, it didn't even matter the race of the educator. No, no, it doesn't. Yeah. In That's fact, right. and it starts really early. So, those, right. so I think it's also it's not just like they magically mm-hmm. because they're boys <laughs> they become more violent. It's also what society has placed on them, mm-hmm. you know. And I love what you talked about, you know, addressing the the trauma. But because we, while they do experience the same traumas, 
there's actually, in my opinion, and I'm a trauma-informed care educator. Oh, so you know. Yeah, yep. but there's yep. also more support systems for girls when it comes to mental health resources. And it's more socially resources. Yeah, It's more socially to accept, to access them. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. whereas boys get more pushed into criminalization versus girls do. Mm. You know, yeah. and this is also my experience having worked in schools. Mm. And I think we don't talk about that enough. Mm. Their abuse gets dismissed more, especially sexual abuse. Oh, yeah. No one ever talks about the sexual abuse of boys and they have to hold it in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we talk about violence towards women. We also don't talk about the abuse that they take from women in their early childhood. Mm. So these are also things that don't get addressed very early. Mm. So I, was, I just want to also put that. No, no, thank you. No, no, those no, are no. big things. Those are big. And especially the criminalization part. I, I remember we're working on a campaign back at Community Coalition to reduce the push out, the, mm. you know, suspensions and expulsions. So something like 85% of suspensions and expulsions uh, in LAUSD, there, there are four categories you can be suspended for. Violence, you know, being violent to someone, bringing a weapon, being, bringing drugs. And the fourth is called willful defiance. defiance. Right. Which means whatever you think it means. <laughs> 85% of the suspensions of, of black and Latino boys were willful defiance. So we make this campaign, we go to the superintendent, we say, you know, you guys gotta change this whole thing. And he says, well, I got a big problem with this. And I was like, what, you know, are we gonna fight? You know what I mean? Like, are we gonna, are we gonna have a, we need to bring more people to march on you? And he was like, no, he was like, this is for K through 12. And I was like, so what's the problem? He was like, Marquise, have you seen the push out in preschool? And I was like floored. <laughs> wow. He was like, we kick out just as many, if not more kids in preschool and kindergarten in LAUSD as we do in K through wow. 12. And he's like, it's almost exclusively black and Latino boys. Like three, four year olds uh, are getting kicked out of school. So it, it's a, uh, and LAUSD to their credit has done better. We, mm. we, were able, we won that campaign, reduced suspensions and expulsions dramatically. And What's funny is that we modeled our campaign in Stockton mm -hmm. around the one you guys did in LA. Oh, really? Oh, okay. We okay. had the same, same data. Oh, issues, oh really? Same issues. Same Wolf of Defiance. Yeah. It's like, it's like, what's that mean? <laughs> exactly. Like, it's like, yeah. Was anyone harmed in <laughs> right. this Wolf of Defiance? Right, 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 right. As my mom said, she said, well, I have two boys and they popped out of the womb willfully. Defined. Yeah, like, so like, it's called so, kids. Like, right? It's called being a kid. Uh, I want to move on to the headliner now. Uh, lots of press, uh, international story. Uh, we're, we, cities all over the country now are, are emulating what you did in Stockton. We're doing it here in Los Angeles. I'm proud to have been a part of uh, Los Angeles's program's biggest one in the country. Uh, guaranteed basic income. Ours here is called the Big Leap. It's in Compton. It's all over. Uh, but basically what it says to people is um, you can fill out an application and uh, if you meet certain requirements, we're just going to supplement your income for a year, for two years, for three years, and we're going to see what happens. And we're going to measure things like what happens to you, what happens to your mm -hmm. health, how do your kids do in school, the big one that we're measuring here in L.A., and we don't have data yet, but we're very excited to get it, is what happens to community violence? Mm. You know, if just one person, because I, I maintain this, and I remember this growing up. If you lived on a block where, if there was a block where no one had a good job, it was very different than a block where two families had good jobs. Everybody else could still be low-income, but just two families had good jobs and were relatively stable. It could change the entire block. And then if half the block had good jobs and good income, you know, that was a good neighborhood, mm -hmm. frankly, even though there were still people who were very poor in that that neighborhood, especially as it relates to violence. So talk to us about uh, how you arrived at that uh, project, how you how you sold it uh, to a city that is not exactly, you know, Berkeley, California, uh -huh. liberal, progressive. Yeah, I meant to say this. It's it's, it's funny. I, I meant to say this in that question about Stockton. The whole time I was mayor, my council was four Republicans and two Democrats. Wow, four to two. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so everything okay. we're talking about yeah. was done in the context where I'm trying to get my folks on the other side to mm -hmm. see things the way I, I see it. But really, it came to basic income. And in, in college, I remember reading Where Do We Go From Here? Dr. King's last book. Mm -hmm. And he talked about, like, we tried to abolish poverty. He was talking about his work, too. He said, you know, we tried to attack poverty by attacking healthcare or education or housing. And he said, all those efforts are pygmy and, and stymied and siloed. And he said, I'm now convinced that the simplest way to deal with the issue of poverty is the most direct. And I remember reading that and being shocked because I spent every year doing Dr. King reenactments and, yeah, and, and yeah, writing yeah. essays and Dr. King essay contests. And 
had never heard, and I knew about the Poor People's Campaign, right. but I'd never heard that part of his thinking or legacy. So much of Dr. King's stuff gets papered <laughs> over or, or washed out, wash, whitewashed. So I remember reading it and saying, God, it would be really cool. This is the fun funniest thing. And I, I tell you 100% truth. I was like, God, it'd be cool one day to be part of a discussion about this idea. Like, does it work? Like, But I was just college thoughts in the binder. And then when I became mayor, after four years on council, I, I came to a similar conclusion that we would continue to bump our head against the wall unless we dealt with the poverty in the city. Yeah. And we would be in meetings about like the educational attainment or the violence or anything, homelessness. And I always say, well, the issue, people ain't got no money. Like, like, right, 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 the kids right. who aren't doing well in school, parents aren't don't have money in their bank accounts. Like it was just it was just so clear. So I remember telling my staff. I said, you guys, listen, I don't know if a city can end poverty, but we have to do, we have to be a pro-opportunity anti-poverty administration. And I want us to think about not just programs, but policies that yeah. can really disrupt poverty. Because we could do programs, but we're not in office. But when we're in office, we make policies. So let's think of policies. Yeah. And longer story short, they came back with this idea of, of a guaranteed income. But this was in 2017, early. So... Most of the stuff that was happening was happening abroad. So they're talking about giving people three dollars a day in Mexico and Brazil and Kenya. And I was like, okay, like three dollars. <laughs> Is that gonna work here? And that's right, right. But I said this, I said it's interesting that people are studying cash transfers. But at first I thought maybe because of the differences in magnitude of scale that that might not work here. But let's let's keep looking, let's keep researching. Then we found out in the 60s, we were really close to a national guaranteed income and that Richard Nixon was planning on doing all these, was doing guaranteed income experience, experiments and trying to understand. Interesting. And, and that part of why it didn't pass out the house was because um, divorce rates rose for those who didn't receive, right, who received the guaranteed income yeah. because like, yes, women now have some agencies, yeah. the ability to flee abusive or just not good relationships because they could stand on their own two feet. So anyway, so then my team came back, was like, well, look, we could do something here. And it's before I talked to any funders or anything. So I said, well, how will we pay for it, right? And we thought about using cannabis revenue. And I said, okay, if we could use a little bit of cannabis revenue and what if we target it to the thousand poorest families in, in the city? And let's, let's just see how that would go. But it's like, we'll save that though. I don't think that's going to be something we could get. It's going to take too much effort to do. Yeah. And then literally the next week, I was at a conference with a group called the Economic Security Project and the co-founder, Natalie Foster. And she had worked at the Obama administration. I was an intern, so she knew we knew a little bit about each other. She said, we are looking for a city to test guaranteed income in. Have you heard of it? And I was like, oh, I have a task force right now working <laughs> on this issue. Way and to it, seize the moment. Yes, and the issue is funding. We need funding. Um, and we ended, up, we ended up working together. But when we started... It wasn't because I felt like this was the answer. It was really because I was just super motivated and felt like I was responsible for asking the question. And, and the question being, do we have to have poverty? And it wasn't until later I was listening to Brene Brown and she talks about the best people or leaders are those who aren't committed to being right but are committed to getting it right. Yeah. And I think that was the ethos behind the work. It was like, well, let's, that's why we set up the evaluation. Let's test it, let's measure it, because what's not working is all this poverty. And let's keep talking and acting like we don't know why we struggle. Right, <laughs> like, right, right, like, right, 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 right. And I would tell my staff all the time, if the status quo is fine, leave it alone, even if it's not yeah. perfect. We got, But if it's untenable, then we're yeah. going to put all our political capital on that because that's the stuff that, that has to change. So that's sort of how we started the... And and what happened? What, uh, what, what are the top line? What yeah. are the big? What's the data? And then tell us your favorite stories. Yeah, the um, the data, it, it's, it's, was it's so interesting because we're seeing it now with some of these other pilots. But number one, people spent money on things that made sense. <laughs> like people spent money on food. Like food was the top expenditure. Folks are hungry. People spend money on their kids. So you mean people didn't buy spinning rims? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe they did one month, but not every month. No, 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 no. Just kidding. People spent their money on food as best as we can tell. Um, number two, this idea that this is the big one for me, the, the health impacts that those who yes. received the guaranteed income compared to those who didn't, after just one year, and this was pre-COVID, 
those who received the guaranteed income were went from stress to regular on wow. the on the on the Kessler scale, while those who didn't receive the guaranteed income started stressed, ended up the year more stressed, right? But the delta for those who received the guaranteed income was like similar to what they see in clinical trials of Prozac. Wow. Meaning that so Whoa. much of maybe so many of the mental health or the anxiety or the health problems we have can be triggered by just being economically anxious. And that for me was like, wow. And we saw it over and over and over again in the data, in the qualitative quant, qualitative part where sure. people can say they can breathe. I feel like I can wow. breathe. Yes. I feel like I can breathe. Foots I, off my neck. Yeah, literally. Like, yeah. like I, one woman said, I used to, before I go to bed, I used to like have trouble breathing because I'd be so stressed about tomorrow. And can I pay this? Can I pay that? She said, now everything's not perfect, but whew, I can breathe. Yeah. I have, I have, I have the ability to think and, and make decisions. Um, and then the third thing, which is what everyone was actually the most shocking <laughs> to me, but it makes sense after talking to some folks, was the employment data. And not only like those who received the guaranteed income were two times more likely to go from part-time to full-time work than those who didn't, and two times less likely to be unemployed. Wow. And I, I was a little bit nervous about where that data point would end up, but it made so much sense that there's... And first, the vast majority of people who can work in our society and can find work, they actually do work. Like yes. this idea that yes. a bunch of people ain't working, this is not true. Yeah. Um, and then number two, getting to work costs money. So if you don't have any money and your transmission goes out, yes, you get $1,000 at the end of the week if you went to work, but you can't get there because you can't pay the $300 to get your car fixed. Right, 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 right. Or childcare. Mm -hmm. Or for folks who work in um, security guards or nursing, you got to pay to get your stuff dry clean. If you don't have money to go to, to pay for it to do dry clean, you can't get to work. And it was eye-opening to me, council member, how so many of the barriers to people going to make money was right. not having money. Wow, <laughs> like, wow. wow. Yeah. And then so many stories. There's a guy, Tomas, six months into the program, before the data, because he's part of the non-data cohort, we did an event just to talk to the city and I guess the nation, like what was happening, what we were learning. And I remember I was just, so well, how'd you spend the money the first month? And he looks at me, and he said, I went to an interview. And I, in my head, I'm like stressed out. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> they said folks are going to spend money. And this boy spent $500 on the interview. He got scammed. <laughs> so I'm like trying to keep it together. And I'm like, you paid $500 for an interview? And then he laughed. And he said, no, 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 no. He said, I worked a part-time job. There were jobs I was qualified for that were full-time. But because we live so paycheck to paycheck, I couldn't even afford to take Get a day, day off, off. Yeah. to go apply. Because I don't get paid time off. And wow. I was like, yeah. And you forget that so many, like, I think half of workers in this don't country get don't get paid time off, off yeah. right? Like, and he says, but I was able to bet on myself and take a day off to interview, and I got the job. Wow. And that's a wow. full time. Uh, it's yeah. like, yeah. And the old, nothing changed about him. Yeah. He didn't have to go get a certification. Yeah. He just needed the money to take a couple a day hours off. of work to he go. He just needed a day off. And then he wrote an amazing article last Father's Day in Newsweek about how basic income helps him be a father. Yeah. And he said because he was so, he was working two, three jobs, putting things together, that he was stressed, he was anxious, he, he didn't know his kids. And he said, but now I know my kids. I know my daughter likes science because I'm home sometimes and I can wow. interact with her. And now I have money. I just bought her a telescope for her birthday. And we went to the aquarium and it's like, wow, the ability to parent and to yeah, show up as a yeah. full person. And then another um, woman, Zane, we had the governor in Stockton and we were talking about some of this stuff. And I didn't know this. I, know she was, I didn't know this. So it right, was like really right. moving to here. That's always scary when you're in a oh. <laughs> big meeting. You don't know what people are going to say. Yeah. I'm just like, <laughs> I know my folks. My folks are talking So we're in this meeting. And COVID had just started, so we uh -huh. did, hadn't really set up the testing facilities and things that we needed. Um, and she talked about how she had like a cough and, and her nose was running a couple weeks earlier. And it's very simple. She said, and I didn't go to work because I was reading about this COVID stuff. I don't want to get other people I work with sick. And she worked like a Tesla or like Amazon or something. And she said, but the only reason why I did that is because I had that 500 from Mayor Tubbs. And I was like, okay. I could afford to stay home and do this two weeks. She said, if I didn't have the guaranteed income, I would have went to work because wow. the guarantee was wow. that I'm going to lose out on money. Yeah. I don't, I didn't, and she ended up having COVID. She said, I didn't know about COVID. It was too hard to get a test. I didn't have yeah, time. Right, she said, right, right, right. so I, she said, I feel like the $500 saved somebody's life because yeah. I was able to say, and for me, that was so eye-opening, like in yeah. the midst of a pandemic, mm -hmm, like folks mm -hmm. are saying, 
we can help mitigate the spread if I knew that I could be at home. Right, right. And that my bills would still be taken care of. But people aren't going to be walking around starving, walking around, not being able to, to afford things. And then countless stories of folks who are able to leave abusive relationships or um, to one guy got to invest, invest in a small business and then was able to take his first vacation in six years, wow. see his family in Tennessee. Just like amazing stories. And for yeah. me, the undercurrent or overall theme has always been everyone's story was different. Right, and, right. And the biggest lesson for me as a leader from the guaranteed income stuff was that nobody is smart enough to think for everyone who, who they represent. Wow, Even wow. If you're well Say that again. Like Say that no one more time. No government official, no person is smart enough to think through all the different ways in which folks have to make decisions. And yeah. It was so humbling for me in the design process to just meet with a different person every hour and every single person had a different way they would spend the money. Yeah. Like things I wouldn't think of. Like I remember one mother where before he gave out any money, she was like, this will help me in the summer. I was like, why would it help you in the summer? And she mm. said, oh, my kids come back home from school in the summer. She says, I don't tell them, but it's very stressful for me because all my bills go up, food goes up, electricity oh, wow. goes up. Wow. And my pay doesn't go up. And she's like, and I don't want them to feel like they can't come home. So she's like, this is the first time they'll be home for the summer and I'll be like actually really happy. And actually wow. like, and I was like, wow. And this other lady talked about getting her car fixed. And 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 one grandmother, um, and people didn't like this story, but I thought it was a real story. When NBC Nightly News did a piece, she talked about how as the matriarch in her family, she always felt bad that her kids had to bring food for like family events she'd host at her house. And she had the TV crew follow her with her basic income because mm-hmm. she was able to buy Thanksgiving dinner. Wow! For her whole family, people are like, "That's something." I was like, "That's it's about dignity. It's yeah. about yeah. her feeling like I could be the matriarch and my kids could come to the house for Thanksgiving and I paid for everything and they could just eat food." So it's it was very eye opening, particularly around how and and you know this that the issue is we trust some people with money implicitly, like. The Republicans just took back the House. The first thing they're trying to do is what? Tax cuts to the rich. Give rich people money. Like they, yeah. There's some people. Trump's first thing in office, his biggest legislative accomplishment was really his only $2 trillion dollars in yeah. tax cuts. Like, yeah. We give people money all the time, or even the history of this country, giving stolen land to people, giving college degrees. Like we, there's a history of giving things to some people. I think part of this guaranteed income conversation is why can't we trust everybody the same way? Why can't government invest in everyone the same way? Um, So so it's been exciting to see so many other leaders and cities take it and run with it because at some point it just, it will be too, like the there's so much, if not today, if not tomorrow, at some point it's going to have to happen because we have, we live in a time of pandemic. So the next wildfire, the next flood, the next earthquake, the next, public health crisis, we have to send people money. And yeah. it's probably cheaper to let people build resilience now. So not if, but when the next pandemic comes, people are in a better position. So I'm more optimistic than ever at, at the prospects. And, and it just, it, it's been such a, I mean, people spend their whole lives trying to find that thing that really, and for me, I feel so lucky, so young to be a part of this that yeah. feels like it's going to be consequential. Yeah, and you can watch it. And, yeah. And it's really started a movement, so we're excited uh, for that. And thank you for that. That's been a big gift to the country um, that you figured out how to get it done and how to get it right. And uh, I think so many folks are going to be, see their lives change in ways like you described, in ways that we can't predict or see. Uh, just because they got a little a breathing room, a little the foot off their neck. And I'm sure you and your staff have talked about it, but just the sheer numbers of people who applied. Yep. Um, in this city was so heartbreaking. Yep. I was like, wow, like we have to. And now I'm just more focused than ever that we we this can't be a lottery. No, it cannot be a lottery. Like, no, it, for it, the three thousand yeah. people, it's gonna be great for them. I'm happy for them, but for the yeah. hundred thousand people who didn't who get applied, it, I'm right. like. So by, just for uh, parenthetical reference, we have a program called Big Leap here in Los Angeles. There were 33, 3,200 slots for people to receive $1,000 a month extra income um, on, a, on a card. So what they spend it on will be tracked. And we had over 100,000 applications just here in the city of Los Angeles. It's crazy. It's, uh, every time in Chicago, same thing. Cook County put the applications out for like 3,000, 3,500 slots. 120,000 people applied. 
and we were on the panel and I was like, no, I'm, I'm not hating on the outreach. I'm glad you guys did that much outreach, but that's not a data point to be happy about. Well, it's I not mean. a data point to be happy about because we all know the hundred, those hundred thousand people just represent the people who could get it, get it together to fill out an application. There's a bunch of people oh. who one, didn't know there was an application to fill out and two, a set of people that knew and didn't, you know, didn't, couldn't take the day off to figure out or didn't speak enough English or couldn't, weren't literate enough to, to be able to fill out the application. So. It's, you know, it's really exciting. It's been one of the joys of my time on council mm -hmm. to be able to do that project. And we only, we're only able to do it because of you. The reason we didn't have to have a political fight here in LA about it, uh, as soon as we suggested it and we found the money for it, you know, it was, it took off like a rocket. And so we want to thank you for that. Siobhan has been very kind. She's let us nerd out for way yeah, over sorry, the amount of time. Matches were far from concise. <laughs> Usually that tightened up, but. So, but we do have our lightning round because okay, we're trying I'll to be build lightning. a, a compendium here. I didn't even get to, I have to have you at, back to ask you about Los Angeles. Oh yeah, please. One of my favorite subjects and and uh, <laughs> and uh, eager to hear about your immigration story here yeah. for you and your, your family. Um, but uh, we asked three questions, lightning round, you just answer right off. Uh, we're building a little library here for uh, our show. Favorite song that reminds you of South LA? Oh, Victory Lab, Dipsy Hustle. Oh, there it is, big time. All right. And Blue Laces 1 and 2. Blue Laces 1 and 2. Oh, yeah. You know, Blue Laces 2. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just listen to the lyrics. Oh, is that about the council meeting? Yes. You know, I listen to that. Um, <laughs> also, I, every time I'm like, mention the. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, okay. I'm, d I'm down now. <laughs> I got put on. Uh, favorite place to fake, take your family in South LA? Uh, maybe not my family. I like taking myself to Soul Folks. Um, I like taking my family to the Baldwin Hills, like, stairs. Ah, wow. Okay. It's like at the end of I know it's yeah, like clients, yeah, yeah. Clients, no, no, that, that, works, that works. That works. That works. That works. I think I took you. I think I was the first person to take you to Seoul. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, that was fun. That was fun. And hot and cool. Yes, 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 yes. Favorite place to get food? Ooh, that's tough. Yeah, somebody's going to be mad. Yeah, somebody's going to be mad. So you just right, get ready for it. <laughs> Simply wholesome. Simply, I was a good, good dodge. Good dodge. Simply wholesome. All right. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Mayor Tubbs. Uh, thank you for, for uh, this discussion today. Uh, very, very exciting about what we can accomplish uh, together and, and the, the trail that you've blazed uh, for so many of us that try to do public policy. So again, on behalf of all the people in Los Angeles, thank you. And thank you for being on Off the Record. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you for listening to MHD Off the Record. And special thank you to Felicia, the poetess Morris of Morris Media Studios in Lamert Park. For more information, please visit MHDCD8.com and follow at MHDCD8 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget to rate us five stars, subscribe, and share with a friend.